Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be. Welcome along, everybody, to episode 15 of the Neither Here Nor There podcast. It's already the, well, the end of October. Um, I'm Stephen Kilby, and alongside me from 3,000 miles away is Daniel Greer, co-host. How are you, Daniel? Well, correction. It's more than 3,000 miles, my friend. Make that... Four? 4,002 miles based on your location on Find My Friends. So, wow. Yeah, you're a, you're a long way away, bud, and it, it's sad. A whole ocean away. <laughs> a, whole, a whole ocean away, but milliseconds away by audio. That's right. Well, you know, uh, everybody listening, thanks for tuning in once again. It's Thursday night. Uh, the 26th and you will be listening to this uh, starting the 27th so we're we're backed up again against the wall aren't we Stephen and getting this thing out (laughs) (laughs) we certainly are it's been another couple of weeks of travel for me as my season winds down but it's you know we're doing this on time there's no delays you know aside from that one time we've been pretty much on schedule haven't we and that was due to technical difficulties, so you know we were still on schedule. But, um, but yeah, no, you, you said it's the end of October. That's terrifying. This uh, this time of year always goes by so fast, and I love October. The weather's perfect, and um, it's been perfect. And it, it's like, man, you know, next week's November, and um, it's it's shocking um, to me. But I guess you just got back from Portugal. How was that? wet really wet we were there for 11 days uh me and my colleagues and it rained every day for 11 days it we landed in 28 degree heat and it was like oh this is this is quite hot and i put my shorts on um and that evening the the day we arrived it rained like i've never seen rain before it rained so hard that there were there was water seeping through the floor and the walls in the villa that we were staying in Um, and basically every day after that it rained at least once significantly um so yeah an an interesting couple of well 11 days week and a half spent in portugal so at least i've been there's so many times at this time of year, never seen anything other than blue skies and sort of mid twenties heat. So yeah, it was uh, certainly surprising, but a really good trip though. A really good trip. I enjoyed it. I had a, we had a lot of fun. Um, final race of the season for one of the championships I'm working in. So yeah, it's good to kind of put some closure on that and uh, finish with an end of season party that took place on my birthday. Um, with an open bar, which was dangerous, um, and two thousand people for company, so it was it was interesting. Wow, two thousand people for your birthday—that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they really laid it on for me this time. <laughs> got got to hand it to the European Le Mans series; they really know what they're doing when it comes to birthday celebrations. Because I've never seen anything like it. There was five separate buffets. It was they really did go overboard i think it was only my 29th you know what are they going to do next year for my 30th 
Who knows? It's not going to matter because you're going to be in America next year for your 30th birthday. Damn right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, happy happy late birthday. I mean, I don't have to say it. I've already told you. Um, But I'll say it for the podcast. And our combined age, Stephen, is 59, I think. (laughs) Great. That's that's really, really horrible. (laughs) Was I an uncle the last time we recorded a podcast? Uh, yes, you were just about, I think uh, just about because I became an, yeah, maybe I was. Yeah. So if, if we didn't talk about it yeah, my sister gave birth to my niece back on October 6th, a healthy little girl. Um, I've seen her already. Her name's Hattie and she's very sweet. Um, and thank goodness looks nothing like her dad. Just kidding, Cody, if you're listening, <laughs> she actually looks a lot, <laughs> a lot like him and that's a good thing. Um, but yep. So big changes over on that branch of the family and, uh, good changes. You know, my parents are grandparents. I'm an uncle, um, as surreal as that still sounds, uh, for me to say, but, um, it's been a good, good fall. I have to say, um, I have a shout out to our very own social media manager, quote, unquote, uh, Becky has asked me to ask you a question. And I'm actually interested myself to know. Did you see this in the shared note, or am I going to hit you with a blind question? Uh, no, hit me with the blind question. I didn't see that. Oh, I see at the top of the notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Okay, so so Becky said a couple weeks ago she watched this Netflix documentary on David Beckham. And okay. she wants to know what you think about David Beckham. I, I don't know if you've seen this documentary. I certainly have not. Um, but what are, what are your thoughts on David Beckham in general as a person, as a footballer? Uh, she's curious to know, and I, I, of course, am curious to know as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the Netflix documentary has kind of been in the news everywhere since it came out over here because Beckham being such a huge star and um, there being plenty of snippets from it that have kind of made mass media coverage. Um, I've not actually seen it, but I am tempted to watch it. I know a handful of people who have and have all said it's actually pretty good. And even people who aren't interested in football have enjoyed it. Um, David Beckham. What can I say about David Beckham? Um, Remarkably, aside from the odd England appearance, I've never really watched him play. Because when when he moved from Man United to Real Madrid, um... That was kind of just at the crossover at the point where I became properly aware of football and started to get into it. And him playing in Spain meant that I really didn't watch him much. I actually had a, a I have a Beckham shirt from Real Madrid um, that my cousins bought me for my birthday one year, just after he moved to Spain. But um, yeah, it, it wasn't really at that point, it wasn't very easy to watch Spanish football over here. So you would get the news coverage of it. But I can't say I watched a single second of him playing for Real Madrid. So, yeah, it's hard to form an opinion on him, aside from the fact that I, you know, have a huge amount of respect for his level of, you know, ability on the pitch. He's just an all-time great. And, you know, anyone who says he isn't, either has never seen him play or is just, you know, categorically stupid because he was unbelievable. Um, and all the way up until he retired, really, he was still an unbelievable player. Um, but yeah, I mean, as a person, he's always seemed a bit wooden and cardboard to me. He's like, 
not much to him. I've you know I respect him as a businessman because he's made an absolutely enormous amount of money and you know spent a lot of his retirement investing in companies and obviously he's involved in Major League Soccer and you know he never stands still. He's not somebody who retired, became a pundit, or just stopped and didn't really do much. He's always doing something, selling products, investing in businesses, you know, traveling around. Is all of it you know, above board. Mm. Yeah, he's He's got some pretty strong connections to some pretty ropey regimes in the Middle East that I think many people uh, would have a problem with. But as a whole, no real problems with David Beckham. I wouldn't call him a national treasure in terms of personality, but um, <laughs> undeniably a all-time great at the sport and a, and a celebrity, like a proper, proper old-school celebrity that everybody in the country knows him and has an opinion on. Do you think he's the ideal modern British man? Like, does he epitomize that? No, I don't think so. Um, He's a flash Harry. He's got a ton of money, lives a, you know, a luxurious lifestyle. He has that kind of, you know, heartthrobby type look, I guess. Very much a perfume advert look all the time. <laughs> Looks like he's selling Gucci products all the time. But I wouldn't call him the model British man. Um, no, I don't think many people... I think people idolised him for a, as a player, but I don't think people idolise him as a person. That's not to say he's a bad person, because I don't believe he is. But I don't think anybody's... He's not going to win any prizes for charisma as far as i'm concerned so yeah i don't know do you have an opinion on him at all was he at all i know he played in america briefly but was he in any way uh in your consciousness um, at any point i mean he's definitely one of the first iconic soccer players for my generation you know um i remember i guess like the the 90s and 2000s when i was a kid you know he was a household name um i don't really know much about him Otherwise, I guess he's married to one of the Spice Girls, isn't he? Is that still a he thing? Is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, no, that's kind of cool. But um, I, I do have a lot of respect for him. Uh, after I read that he, when the Queen died, he stood in line for hours and hours and hours to pay his respects. I thought that was really humble. And I mean, as big of a celebrity as he is, he waited in, lo- in line like the common man or woman. Uh, to pay his respects to his queen. I, I thought that was really cool um, and kind of, you know, a, a class A example of of British culture. Um, that would be the most notable thing of late that I would say about Beckham myself. Do you remember seeing that? Or Yeah, I mean, there were lots of celebrities who kind of got criticism for jumping the line, and there were a handful of people who, who kind of refused to do that. So yeah, I remember the I remember him being kind of name checked in the list of people that actually queued up for seventeen hours or whatever it took for people. So yeah, no, that's yeah, very admirable certainly. Yeah, um, but he's he's somebody that I think divides opinion, partly because he played for Manchester United at a time when Manchester United were just this totally dominant force they were like the evil yeah. empire at the time weren't they? They, oh, they they were i mean looking back now 
you know, they're nowhere near as evil of an empire as some of the evil empires we've got in the sport at the moment. But he, because he's played for Manchester United and won practically everything and was in the news all the time and had the press hounding him all the time. So every, you know, every time he farted, it would make news somewhere. Everyone has an opinion on him, whether that's can't stand the guy, such a posh twat, or what an amazing player, totally in awe of him. He's sort of a bit Marmite in that sense. What do you mean by Marmite? For I know what Marmite means, but for our American audience, what is the term? Do you not have, do you not have Marmite in America? Not really. I mean, I, I know the expression oh. you just used from, from you, but when you say that he's Marmite or she's Marmite, what do you mean? It's you love it or hate it. You love it or hate. So Marmite is like a spread that you put on toast, which I don't know. Is it called is it called like in some parts of the world it's got a different name. So in Australia it's called Vegemite. I just don't think it's I mean, you can probably get it here, but it's just not a staple. I I thought it was a a staple in most countries, really. Unlike sort of Worcester sauce and ketchup. Okay. Oh, so yeah, it's like a, a really strong tasting spread that you put on toast it's very pugnant right i think i've had it once yeah it's yeah and it is as as the phrase goes it's you either love it or hate it it's marmite because yeah you nobody goes it's okay (laughs) you when you eat marmite you either go oh it's the worst thing i've ever had in the world that's absolutely disgusting how can you eat that or you go oh that's lovely that's really nice. Well, you know what they say so, about British food. <laughs> so, Why? Well, it's the best in the world. How? How? What's that got to do with it? How in the world did, did the British Empire conquer a quarter of the globe's land and population and not figure out how to properly use spices in their own cuisine? I feel like we should touch on that briefly. It's <laughs> 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 true. I mean, think about it, man. Just salt and pepper. That's all there is. <laughs> so you need bit of salt and pepper um well <laughs> let's let's move on um i have a few thoughts to open up i'm sure you do too and actually most of this is your dad's feedback um so but a few few things um i'd like to point out that you and i are idiots um which we know that and i'm sure all of our listeners know that by now and we're speak for yourself well we're idiots because we didn't realize that the last episode about Halloween that we did went live on Friday the 13th of October. We didn't mention that. How did we miss that, Steve? <laughs> well, I think it's a sign. I think it's it was it's it's part of the folklore of this podcast that we the over the level of oversight sometimes is pretty remarkable. Um and yeah, it's and I don't. I think we could have recorded that episode two hundred times. I don't think either of us would have noticed. Probably, probably. <laughs> um, great minds think alike, as they say. Um, or don't think at all in this case. Another thing that I wrote down, and I'm curious if this happens to you. So I, I've been out of uh, university for almost nine years, which is insane to think about. But I still dream about college university all the time. Um, And I'm always dreaming about missing class or I've not been to this class and it's halfway through the semester and I'm scared I'm going to fail. And apparently it's like, it's a really common dream that people have. And actually, so last night I was at 
my banjo lesson and I'm sitting in the waiting room talking to the receptionist who's this young girl um, that's in college and I, we were just catching up and I said, Sydney, um, you know, enjoy college, blah, blah, blah. But I promise you, once you're out of college, you're going to dream about college. And expl- I explained to her like what I just explained to you. And then this lady who was sitting a couple seats over, she was on her phone. She spoke up and said, hey, I'm 57 and I still dream about college and missing class. So I'm curious if you, Stephen, do you, do you have those dreams? They're, they're like stress dreams or something, I guess. I don't know. No, not about university or college. No. Um, I do about sometimes about like exams in high school. Um, but more to do with like work I'm doing at the moment, like stuff I've got on my plate is what I would dream about. Okay. Um, but that's partly because I think my university experience was very different from, from yours and I guess the traditional American experience in the sense that I didn't live on campus. Um, and I didn't have, aside from when you were over and studying abroad, my university life was basically split between going into lectures three or four times a week on the train and coming home and working as a freelance journalist. So it didn't really ever feel like a full-time thing because I was not in, I wasn't immersed in university every day because I wasn't living on site. I was living at home. So I would jump on the train and it would be like just, you know, going in for four or five hours, three times a week, going to a couple of lectures, sitting in the library, doing a bit of work, and then going home and then kind of switching off from it. So it was never, I was never surrounded by people on my course for any length of time, stressing about exams or, you know, essay writing and stuff like that. It was all done privately on my own at home, basically, or sitting in the library on my own. So that's probably why, because my, you know, it wasn't, an all-consuming experience like it would have been if I had I been living on a campus, that, if that makes sense. No, that, that does make sense. And um, I guess, you know, the funny thing for me is my days at school uh, at, at ETSU and Roehampton, those were the best years of my life, and they were very unstressful. I loved college, and I loved writing papers about history and, you know, reading the required readings and I mean, I had stress, but I was never overly stressed. And it's funny that I have those dreams because it wasn't the reality. You know, I always went to class. I graduated early. And it's uh, it's funny that it's like that. Um, I'll save your dad's points for my topic because it ties in directly. Because my topic is going to be more Halloween. Um which awesome. I feel like we should talk about because it's not quite Halloween, you know, why not? Um, you, uh, well, I had a fact and I could not, I saw this somewhere, but I, I tried to verify it today and I could not verify this. So I don't want to share my fact. Do you have a fact of the fortnight by chance? Uh, I don't. I shared one last time, oh. but did we both share one? I don't. So I didn't look, I, I thought it was kind of your turn this time well it was um and I'll, I'll go ahead and say i guess so i saw i think it was on reddit which you can't trust reddit but i saw that the city of charlotte north carolina where i live um has a higher gdp than hungary hungary the country in eastern europe um 
I couldn't verify that as a as a GDP as a whole. Now Charlotte does have a higher GDP per capita than Hungary, but whether or not that's true, the first part or just the per capita part's true, I do find that interesting because Hungary's a country of ten million people. Charlotte's metropolitan area has like two and a half million, so it's a quarter the size, but has a much higher at least GDP per capita. I can't verify that. Um, so I guess like, you know, it is kind of surprising on the surface, but I could believe it though, because Hungary, as far as I'm aware, isn't um, an enormously affluent country outside of Budapest, is it? Right. Right. And, you know, I was, I was kind of pondering this this week myself and I said, well, you know, it makes sense. Charlotte's top 15 big, biggest cities in America and then Charlotte's a financial hub for the globe. I mean, you know, Bank of America is headquartered here. And then we have Wells Fargo, Truist, Banks. Um, you know, th- there's Lowe's department stores, Honeywell, um, Duke Energy. I mean, it's a, it's a financial and economic hub, wealthy city overall. And then, yeah, I mean, outside of Budapest, which, of course, is an ancient historic city a tourist destination on the danube um hungary's probably not very well off and you have to i guess factor in the fact that hungary suffered under 50 years of communism so uh, i would say that that doesn't help the the country's gross domestic domestic product to this day um i'd say that you know that's a factor like charlotte's grown in a capitalist free market whereas hungary for for worse, I'm sure, um, was set back for literally half a century by being under a planned economy and under a totalitarian regime. So um, I guess it does make sense if you know the context. But, you know, if you just say, oh, yeah, the city of Charlotte in North Carolina, you know, this this city in America is bigger, has a bigger GDP than an entire European country. I guess like just that flat, you know, elevator pitch is shocking at first. But if you kind of dig into it more, it's it's a little bit more... Uh, sensible to believe. Mm. No, I could believe it. So I'd be interested to know if you if you can find a way to verify it, whether it is definitely true. Yeah. Well, we know the per capita is true, right? Per capita is what mm. the average GDP per person is greater, mm. which you know, I guess that's not hard to believe. But, anyways, you know, interesting thought nonetheless. I feel like um, mm. I am interested to hear more about your thoughts that you wanted to open up with. Yeah, so this one was well, certainly, I think we had a brief chat about this over the phone, but um, a couple of weeks ago, it would have been now, just before I went to Portugal, um, Carolyn's mum, as part of my birthday presents, bought me a, bought me tickets to the yearly Battle of Hastings reenactment at Battle in Hastings that they do once a year to celebrate the anniversary of the battle um, in 1066. And it was a whole day experience um, at a place that you've been to, so at Battle Abbey. And it was amazing. It was such a good day out. Um, cause I'd, so I'd never really done a proper reenactment experience before. So I've done similar things like, like there's a, there's a theme park in France called uh Pai du Fo, and that is like a kind of trip back in time history theme park effectively where everywhere you go is like a different 
time period and they put on shows every day and stuff and it's amazing but it wasn't as i guess hardcore as um this one this was very much people from around europe so there were lots of people from france um you know unsurprisingly coming dressed as normans um and you know like people who do this as a sort of extreme hobby slash professionally um sort of set up this massive encampment so that you could kind of get a feel for what the atmosphere would have been like in a in a camp for um the sort of infantry um and people surrounding the the battle at the time and then you had you know people doing falconing and showing off of these amazing birds of prey and stuff like this but it was but it's very intense and very his, historically accurate or as best as they could get it so you know you're not sure what to expect as to whether it would be quite intimidating or whether the people around you know that that kind of go to these sort of things are really intense into it and whether it would be kind of inaccessible but actually it was just a really good family day out for you know countless people it was really busy and yeah it was a really good day so you kind of walk in and walk through these camps and you see the people who are acting like you know there's blacksmiths and there's people cooking food and they're like you know they all know their stuff and they're answering questions from people and that sort of thing um then we saw the birds of prey display had some lunch and then they would did like a really in-depth probably two hours or so um like presentation of um saxons and the, the normans and all the so all the different weaponry and shields and you know it went for they went through all sorts of things so on the battlefield they'd have like groups of people dressed up in the the correct clothing and had all the right equipment and stuff like that and they would go through it and explain how it all worked and explain the tactics on the battlefield and that sort of thing and then at the end of it after doing all these demonstrations they did a proper two hour long reenactment and it was really really good because it was all set up so it actually took place on the battlefield itself um and they had like a speaker system set up with somebody in like a effectively a commentary booth who was clearly knew his stuff and was kind of commentating on what was happening and giving it context because they tried to make it so that you know all the key events that happened that we know about during that battle actually happened so about um you know the build up to it and you know all the sort of the sort of key flashpoints of it were all covered and it was just brilliant really really good atmosphere really really interesting to watch and just quite surreal to actually be on the Hastings battlefield to watch it. It wasn't just done in a random field somewhere in the countryside. It's actually on the site that it took place, which is just really amazing. So yeah, that was, that's kind of something I wanted to, to properly explain and catch up with you on, because it was something that I, I really, I spent a lot of the day going, I really wish you were here for this one. Cause you'd love it. Oh yeah. You really would have loved it. And we will do it at some point. If you're, if you come at this time of year and, and it's the weekend that they do the reenactment. It's def. I would definitely go again at the drop of a hat. It was. It was awesome. Well, I don't know what you're doing in 2066, but I. <laughs> but I'd say when we're in our 70s and they celebrate the thousand year anniversary of the Battle of Hastings, 
we should go. But hopefully we'll go before. I mean, as Stephen mentioned, um, I went last year to uh, the town's called Battle and the the national park that's there. And it, it is crazy. I mean, and we know so much about a battle that happened um, so long ago. And there's a lot to take away from the Battle of Hastings. I mean, I guess the the short of it, for those of you that don't know, Hastings was when William the Conqueror uh, defeated, he, he was a French Norman, defeated the Anglo-Saxons, uh, killed Harold Godwinson, mm-hmm. the King of England, and then basically took yeah. England as his own dominion. Um, and the Normans, of course, were descended from Vikings, which is fascinating. And then, of course, the whole trajectory of English history changed, and really probably world history after that, because... England's not really been successfully invaded since 1066. And Charles, the monarch on the throne today, can still somehow trace his lineage all the way back to William the Conqueror. You know, not directly. They've changed houses and dynasties, but they're all interrelated and that sort of thing. But very fascinating to study, you know. And then, of course, it changed English society, it changed the English language because then the nobility, the no, the nobility was speaking French, whereas the <clears throat> common people and the, the leftover Anglo-Saxon aristocrats were speaking Old English, and there was like a blend of languages, and um, well, you know, like Walter Scott, right, like the author Ivanhoe mm-hmm. and uh, Rob Roy and all those, you know, famous books from like the 1800s, he, he postulated that the reasons why our words are different for different like things is based on the Norman conquest. Have you ever heard about that? You'd ha- I mean, no, actually uh, it, the one we covered the Norman conquest and the battle of Hastings at school, it was very early on. So my knowledge of it is not, I would say better than, I would say better than basic, but um, as a whole, patchy because it's been so long since i studied it so like an example would be okay so basically like with with hastings and the aftermath and it took several years for the normans to fully conquer england and uh suppress any rebellion um they 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 became the ruling class right and so they spoke french as i said and uh, apparently our words in english were changed because of that so like well there's so much borrowed there's so much borrowed french well, think about so like farm animals, right? Chicken, cow, pig. Those are all Old English Germanic words. However, pork, beef, and poultry, which are all dishes, right, are derived from French words like boeuf and uh, I think it's poix, maybe. Um, for pork, and then I can't remember what poultry is in French. But anyways, like the the theory that Walter Scott um, proposed was that the reason why that is is because the common people remained Anglo-Saxon and spoke Old English, and then so they were working the farms and they were the servants and that sort of thing. They were the ones out, you know, in the fields taking care of the livestock. And then the upper class after that point were French. And so that's why, like in English, we have Germanic words for livestock uh, or old English words. And then the reason why dishes like 
poultry, beef, um, and uh, pork are derived from French is because the common people who were the natives of England were serving um, dishes, prepared dishes to, you know, the nobility, to the king, to his lords and, you know, whatever. Um, I think Bill Bryson probably touched on it in one of his books. I read it somewhere else too, but it kind of makes sense though, doesn't it? Oh yeah, hundred percent. It's it's such a sliding doors moment in history where you think that the domino effect of um, Howard not getting killed and getting an arrow through the eye, assuming that's what actually happened. We, there is there is actually discrepancy, isn't there, as to whether that's what happened and what killed him. But yeah, it would have been a potentially a very different country culturally. Right, because um, by, by this point in history, had that had that battle gone the other way, yeah, and it almost did, didn't it? You know, halfway through, when it, I think they were saying that rumors rumors were spreading around that um, William the Conqueror had died, and some of his key um, key soldiers near him had died. That they thought that was it, and they were going to be on the run, and then it turned out to be an ambush, and it's all that sort of stuff, and you kind of think it's wild. It all happened. But it, it 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 kind of brought it home seeing the reenactment, just how different the two sides were in terms of tactics, in terms of preparedness, and in terms of resources, because you kind of got the impression that um, the Normans had a far better structure to their army, and in terms of the might and power of their infantry and cavalry. It was just something that we couldn't match, and which is remarkable when you think about it. But that's partly because of the Battle of Stamford Bridge, isn't it, beforehand? And that, well, the, the yeah. That impacted the the number of soldiers ready to fight and how ready they were to go. Yeah, and I mean, that that's fascinating in itself, you know, is that, that um, Harold, the King of England, and his army had just defeated a massive viking army in the north of england right and then march south and meet the normans who had invaded southern england so you know it's, it's kind of crazy to think you know that the anglo-saxons they weren't scrubs they had just won a massive uh battle against the most probably the most vicious uh group of people in the middle ages the vikings who controlled large swaths of england for hundreds and hundreds of years and um, but, you know, the Normans, what, they had heavy cavalry, right? Like armored horses, yeah. heavy armor. Anglo-Saxons probably had more light infantry, I'm guessing. With It was different. Yeah, and it was it was a lot more peasants with makeshift weaponry. Like pikes and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, yeah, stuff that they would have used in general agriculture and farming as well as for fighting off um, attackers. Yeah. And, and invaders. And then, you know, the Normans... I mean, the Normans, you know, Normandy is where they come from, and England was tied to that part of France for so long, and it really England wasn't seen as its own thing for a long time after that. The English king spoke French until Henry V, hundreds of years later, and, you know, England was a province of Normandy, essentially, which is really weird because, you know, William was a duke of Normandy and was supposed to answer to the king of France, and then it gets very, very complicated. But, I mean, the Normans ended up in the Middle East. They ended up in Sicily. They ended up all over the place. I mean, they were a force, and the castles that they built were incredible. I mean, isn't the Tower of London a Norman castle? 
Yeah, I think it is. I think you're right. Yeah, and you know, you can go to Syria. I mean, don't go to Syria if you're listening to this podcast. Don't yeah. go to yeah. Syria. But probably you... give it a, give it a few years. <laughs> probably more than that. Um, but I wish you, I wish we could go because there are uh, Norman castles in Syria from the Crusades. It w- and they're they're up on like these you know ridges above the desert and stuff. These these giant medieval castles that are still in good condition, just sitting up there overlooking you know. Um, the desert and the ridge lines and those sorts of things. There's a lot of that that's in that part of the world, the Levant, you know, that's from that era. And it just kind of shows you, it's like, okay, well, the Normans were in England and they were in what's now Syria and Israel and Lebanon. And it's, it's crazy to think that, but, um, but yeah, gosh, we could talk about that for a whole episode, I guess. Couldn't we? Yeah, we certainly could. uh, I, I think I could just say, Bella Hastings, talk to me, and half an hour later, you'd probably go, right, okay, what do you think? <laughs> I know, right, right. I know, I feel bad because it was your, your thing, but you just you just make me think of things. <laughs> you <laughs> no, make it's me all think. good. You it's make good. me think. Oh. <laughs> um, it's a terrible thing to think. But, um, okay, topics, shall we? <laughs> Yeah. So what did you want to go what did you want to cover on Halloween part 2 then? Well, your dad sent us an email to the podcast email which was cool cuz we don't get a lot of emails on the podcast email. So thank you guy for doing that. Cheers. Um he said, "Love the Halloween podcast, lads. Gave me a few chuckles while up my ladder." What does that mean, Stephen? Does that mean And I I think he actually means while up a ladder. Oh, okay. It's because a... he's uh, decorating <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> so... I, I was like, "Is that a British?" It's not a phrase. <laughs> You know, sitting on the toilet, or you know, like what? <laughs> um, probably, but in this case, I think it. I think he actually probably was up a ladder when he was listening. Yeah. Um, okay. And actually, this is going to be good because this does tie back into Halloween. What he wrote next. So he said, "I'm surprised you didn't tell the London anecdotes about Daniel getting freaked out at the Ghost Stories play." This was back in 2014, and when I. Uh, reached over to him and he jumped and he and I whispered to him, "Did a little bit of poo come out?" Because I jumped so hard after like this scene in the play. <laughs> and then, I guess a couple weeks later, it was when my family was visiting. This is this is an even funnier story. We were seeing the Woman in Black, um, the play, and my dad. You know, the plays like started or something, or the second act started, and my dad realized he wanted to put his glasses on so he could see the play better. Well, he's like rummaging through his bag um, and coat and all this stuff and making all this noise and uh, trying to find his glasses. And at least one person turned around and went, shh, while he was doing that. Um, So two, two funny, um, two funny instances there. The woman in black play was good. I don't really remember. I remember the ghost stories play pretty well, but the, the woman in black, play i especially remember and i know there was the movie of that too with daniel ratcliffe but that was that was really good when we um when we saw that which i don't think you were there were you when we saw i was not there no i was not there yeah i was in america remarkably i was in america (laughs) yep um yep which was unfortunate but you know it is what it is next time Next time. The next time. Um, and then he <laughs> says, I also thought of you this morning when our local neighborhood policing unit issued the attached 
and here's the funny part, guidelines to help us enjoy Halloween. Well, your dad forgot to attach the guidelines to the email, so we have no idea what the guidelines are. <laughs> Maybe that's the joke. Maybe there are no guidelines, oh. and it's just going to be the Wild West. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he says, or depending on how you look at it, pee on the little kids' fun and remind the older kids how to punish non-contributing households. Oh, no context. There must have been guidelines. <laughs> he must have forgotten to attach them. <laughs> but uh, now, now you know where you get it from, Stephen, right? And, and hey, through where all, I get what from? Through transcon- transcontinental osmosis. I <sighs> same forgetfulness, apparently. Uh, but <laughs> um, and then what did he say? Lastly, he says, "Just another reason Halloween is not big over here in jolly old overcautious blighty." Keep up the great pod, guy. Um, well, that was nice. Thank you, guy, for that. And you know, if you want to send us those guidelines, we can we can go over those in the next episode when it's November, I guess. But um, <laughs> oh, yeah, more Halloween. Um, I hope most people are listening to this before Halloween, which is quickly approaching. Um, I could probably share a few stories a few more stories, you know, some people I've talked to said that they thought the one about West Virginia was pretty good, um, that I shared last time. So, and you, I know you've heard one of these, Stephen, but if, if you want me to, I can, I can share a few quick, quick ones and then we can jump into your topic. Um, cause I know we're, Go for it. we opened up with a lot, but I, I will also say, I hate it when Halloween, you know, Halloween's always the 31st and I hate it when it falls on a weekday. Uh, which it's on a Tuesday this year. And it just kind of makes everything confused. Like, you know, most of the Halloween stuff are this weekend, I guess. And, but then like trick-or-treating for kids is kind of all over the place. Cause sometimes people trick-or-treat on the weekend before or the weekend after, if it's later during the work week. And then, you know, some people do on this, the actual day still, but just, you know, a Tuesday, the worst day of the week for a holiday like that. Um, so, you know, it's nice when it rotates back around to the weekend, um, which will be a couple of years. But a um, couple more stories about Halloween. Well, not about Halloween, but I guess ghost stories or whatever. And <clears throat> my mom can tell this story much better than me. And I think she told it to you and Carolyn last year when you were visiting. So um, I can't tell it as well as her, but I'll I'll give a brief rundown of kind of her own ghost story and what happened to her. Um, So my mom's a retired teacher and she, when she was in her early twenties back in the, I guess the late 1980s, she, um, her first teaching job. uh, Now remember my family, we're from Southwest Virginia. Um, Her first teaching job was in South Central Virginia um, in a little town called South Boston, which that part of Virginia, I actually used to live near there and work in that area some. It's it's very rural. It's very flat. It's very poor, too. Uh, there used to be a lot of, like, textile mills and industry there. There's not any more. Uh, there's still a lot of farms, but there's a lot of small towns. It's very isolated. Uh, and, of course, this was the 80s, you know, no internet, no cell phones. This was um, a long time ago. Uh, I know Mom will appreciate that, but... Uh, you know, you got to, I guess, like to kind of set the setting. She's a young woman, um, first teaching job, 
she uh, is four or five hours away from home. And I would say that just in for us, it would be shocking <clears throat> to be that cut off, you know, with no internet, no phone, cell phones. But back in those days, you know, it, it had to have probably still been a little bit odd to, um, to be that far away. Um, but anyway, so she and one of her friends who was also a teacher rented this old house in town, this old one story house. <clears throat> and my mom had a cat. Um, and odd things started happening in this house. Uh, it was just the two of them, as I said, in an older neighborhood and that sort of thing. But they would, uh, I guess they would wake up in the morning after, you know, going to bed and whatever, and lights would be on after they both knew they turned the lights off. Or I think like the fridge door would be open or my mom's cat would be acting funny, which it seems like cats can always kind of sense things. Um, and just odd, odd things started happening. Um, around the house and the um the creepiest thing about it i guess kind of the climax of it all was one night my mom was laying in bed and she slept i guess with the door open she's laying in bed and she can see from her bed straight down the hallway but my mom uh wore glasses and you know couldn't see very well without her glasses or contacts at the time and she's laying in bed half asleep and this kind of like figure in a gown um, exits her roommate's room and kind of like turns and glides and goes down the hall into the kitchen. And my mom says to her, her roommate, hey, was that you? And she hears from the room, the bedroom, no, no, that wasn't me. What are you talking about? Or, you know, uh, something like that. And so that really scared them. And then I think shortly after that, and I may be getting these events mixed up, um, so like I said, I can't tell it as well as her, but shortly after that, they were talking to the next door neighbor who was an older gentleman and he and his wife had lived in the neighborhood for a long time. And they, I guess, explained kind of what had been happening to them. And the, the man says, well, you know, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so lived there before. And uh, Mr. So-and-so actually passed away in the house. He was in hospice care and, passed away in the house and then come to find out the bed frame that my mom's roommate was using was the same bed frame that was his and he had passed away in, I think, which is really creepy. Um, and so after that, neither of them, I believe, ever stayed at night alone in that house again and I, I guess moved out, you know, as soon as they could or after their lease was up for the year. Um, do you remember her telling you guys that story? Yeah, I do. I do now. Because it would have been when me and Karen were there for, and we were watching, uh, we watched scary movies, didn't we, one night over Halloween, just before Halloween, wasn't it? Yeah, I do remember this story. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. I mean, I've heard it for years, and I still can't tell it as well as her. So I apologize, but um, figured I would share that all the same. So, um. Yeah, that, that was that one. And I'm actually surprised I didn't even bring it up last time because that's probably the most topical story to me. Um, nothing like that's, of course, ever happened to me. But um, anyways, we can go on and jump to your topic if you want to. Yeah, so I mean, mine's a um, pretty fun one, really. I just, I don't know where this came from in terms of 
the, my thoughts behind it. My topic is pretty simple. I want to know some skills that you don't have that you've always wanted. Because there's so many possibilities with this. Could be, you know, something that you could do physically, something to do with intelligence, whatever it is. I'm just curious what, you know, what you would, if you were given a genie pops out of the, of the little lamp and says, right, I'll give you a skill. What would you ask for? What can't you do that you wish you could do? Um, and it can be unrealistic. It could, can be something fan, you know, fantastical. Yeah. So it can't be like teleporting instantly anywhere or something. <laughs> you could do that. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. It could be anything. Could be literally anything. Um, yeah, I mean I think teleportation would be great. That would save me a lot of time. Um, and then I could come see you a lot faster, you know, and be back home and that sort of thing. Skip customs and all that, but um <laughs> just you want to be able to teleport so you don't have to wait in line for the TSA. <laughs> no, actually <laughs> I want to be able to teleport so um I can um not have to sit in an hour of traffic each way three days a week to and from work. That would be really nice as well. Um, we, we really went from a, a kind of more morbid topic to something lighthearted, didn't we? So I guess this is the part where if you're listening after Halloween, uh, this is kind of the more post Halloween discussion, so to speak. Um, that would be a good one. And then I saw that you wrote on for you, fluent in a second language well i would like to be i would like to like understand anybody you know anybody any language um i would like for a person to speak and it come into my brain as english and then i could respond in kind and they can understand me i think that would be an amazing skill to have oh yeah i mean i fit and the thing is i do genuinely think before or in our lifetimes technology will enable us to do that oh no doubt it feels like it is kind of we're going to get to a point where something gets released Mm -hmm. by an amazon or an apple or a microsoft which is i don't know how it would work but there's going to be enough in terms of artificial intelligence in terms of the way that stuff like google translate has come on leaps and bounds isn't it in a short space of time there's already apps where you can talk into the app and somebody else can talk into it at the same time. And it kind of reverse engineers the conversation so that both sides can, can understand it. So I do feel they'll get, there'll become a point where you can put a device in your ear. And if somebody's speaking another language, it'll sort of translate it as they say it or something. I've done that. That would be, that would change, that would change the world, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, I that would be so awesome to be able to do that. And and surely, I mean, it, it can't be that far away. Um so that's a realistic one for sure. I mean, even like mm. like I've been like back in the spring I was in an Uber in Atlanta and the the driver was a Venezuelan guy and he didn't speak English uh very well and I don't speak Spanish very well if at all. And um I just pulled up, you know, the translate on my, on my iPhone and we were doing that. We were talking back and forth. It was great. Uh, he loved it. Um, and he was like some kind of cattle farmer in Venezuela at some point and wanted to start a cheese company in Atlanta. I don't know. That's what he was. That's what you, that's what the translation was telling me. So hopefully that was accurate. And, um, 
that was fun. That was really fun to to get to do that. Um, it's just it's so hard. I mean, I don't know if it's it's something that some people just really struggle with because of the way their brain is wired. But I, for instance, studied French from seven years old at school all the way until a first year of A level. So that would have been eighteen. So I did it from seven years old to 18 and I don't feel like I made much progress in that time. I can hold a very basic conversation to this day. I can read French reasonably well. <laughs> List the, my listening skills because of the speed that people in, in France talk, you know, most of the time I struggle with, but for somebody who's, who did it for that long and was doing it on a weekly basis and did it to, you know, almost degree level, it's remarkable how terrible I am at it. It never stuck. It never became natural in any way. So it's, and I don't know if that's just because I've never lived in another country long enough to pick up a language because you have to out of necessity, or whether I would just never be able to do it. I'm but sure I've tried everything. If you lived in in a country where they, there was, you know, they didn't speak English, you would have to. Um, or you would, you know, I, I think so, but yeah. I, and you know, like I, I've studied French too. I mean, I took Spanish in high school. It was terrible, absolutely terrible. Um, and then I took Latin, which I loved, um, had a great Latin teacher at our high school, but then for my history degree in college, I had to take four semesters of French and, you know, you all in America, you always hear these horror stories about French or sorry about taking a foreign language in college, but I loved taking French and I didn't know any French before I was 19. And I uh, had a great teacher. She was from Martinique, um, which is a French territory in the Caribbean. Um, Madame Dufois. I think she moved back to France um, post being a professor at ETSU, Dr. Dufois. Um, You scared her off. I probably did, you know, with this accent, trying to say bonjour and that sort of thing. But, you know, as a result, after those four semesters of taking it, I was semi-proficient in French. She did an excellent job. And I was in the French club at ETSU, which was fun. Um, and then this past summer, I started back uh, learning French. And I've, I've tapered off, regretfully, uh, but with Rosetta Stone. And I would love to be fluent in French. I, I'm the closest for whatever reason. Well, because of that, not for not for for whatever reason, but because of that, I'm closest to French um, in learning another language. But it's so hard. Um, it's hard to dedicate the time. It's hard to keep your skills up because it's like, who am I going to speak French to? You know, like <laughs> I could learn. Well, that's the thing. If unless you keep it up, and and the, that's the worst thing is I spend a lot of time in France. I spend my life around people who speak French because of. Um, you know, my, my job, but everybody is so good at English. Even if you try and speak French to people, they immediately switch to English and can't be asked to battle through broken French. So it's, it's just impossible. It feels like I would need to live in France for years to pick it up to a point where I felt in any way confident with it. Um, Cause at the moment it's just, it almost depresses me how, you know, I can be, I feel like there are certain things in life that I pick up pretty quickly 
and that I'm pretty good at. But there is there are there are a myriad of things that I just I'm just terrible at. And that and my second thing on my list of skills I wish I had is maths. Same thing. You know, in order to get my GCSE at maths, I had to put in so many extra hours and had to knuckle down like I never knuckled down for anything at school before just to get a half decent grade because I'm just awful at it. It just doesn't compute with me. My brain doesn't work in that way. And some people really do have a knack for it, don't they? I'm sure you've encountered people in your life who just have the numbers brain. Yeah. And it just, it's unbelievable. The people who just, you know, and, and it's the same with people who are really good at physics and equations and formulas and stuff. And you just think, oh, no says I oh. genuinely don't get it. I know, I, I don't know. understand. I hate math. I mean, I hate chemistry, physics, all that crap. I mean, it's horrible. I have, I have a, I mean, we've said it before. And if you know me, you know. And if you shoot, if you listen to the first 30 minutes of this podcast, you know, I have a history brain. And for whatever reason, that's how my brain works is with history. And then, you know, ancillary to that, geography, cultural geography. English, but math, science, STEM, engineering, all that fun stuff. Nope, nope, nope. Don't get it. Don't get it. Don't get it. And it's funny because I work in the finance industry. Uh, thank God everything's automatic these days. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But no, I, it's funny. You know, it's funny, Stephen, that we maybe, you know, that's probably one reason why we're such good friends is we, we both are kind of geared the same way academically, I think. Um, mm. and, and interest wise, you know, you're, you're not just like some dude that's like writing equations on a, on a chalkboard all the time. You, you like to read and history and st- you like history and stuff too. So <laughs> that's good at least, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And yeah. And, and I think there are a lot of people who, you know, are just, ludicrously good at mathematics or sciences um but can't write coherently in any way creatively just that the brain doesn't have that they don't have that creativeness everything has to be black or white there is a right or a wrong answer and it's it really does it fascinates me how people develop in and go down those sort of paths it really does i know i wish i wish i was good at good at you know everything but I've I've dedicated so much of my, I mean, my academic career and then a lot of my free time to study in history. And it's like, there's just no capacity for other things, you know? I I mean, some of it's good. Like I like statistics. Um, I like biology. I like geology, but I don't like chemistry, advanced mathematics, physics, Mm. just it's over my head. Um, yeah, me too. Me too. Did you write down ice skating? Can you not ice skate? Yeah, that's my fi- that's my final thing. Yeah, no, I can't really. No, I, mean, I can ski to a I can ski to a really decent level. I'm a very good skier. Um, but I but I've always wanted to ice skate properly. But that's in part because there just aren't that many places to skate. And when you do get the opportunity to skate, inevitably it's at a place where there are two hundred people crammed onto an ice rink, and everyone's just hanging onto the rails on the side and just falling over with while there's like three people who are really good at ice skating, skating backwards around everybody. And so I've never really, there isn't really that much of an appeal for that sort of setting for me, but I'd love to be able to skate properly. 
I, I find it so impressive. And I always wanted to play ice hockey when from when I was really young. I never never got the chance because it was such a time commitment and so expensive. So I've always kind of had in the back of my mind that I really wish I could ice skate. Not really rollerblade or skateboarding or anything like that, but ice skating is something I've always wanted to really do. I can um, ice skate reasonably well. Because um, we used to go as kids to the, the Bristol Motor mm. Speedway would have an ice skating rink in, at Christmas time, like a big one, and we would go. That must be awesome. Yeah, it was really fun. They had like a Christmas village and stuff too, like in the in the inner area, you know, like where the track, in, inside the track, whatever that's called. You probably know the term. but Yeah, the infield, yeah. That's it. That's it. Thank, thank you, motorsports guy. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, you're welcome anytime. <laughs> my useless bank of knowledge has come in handy for once. <laughs> that, that's me every day. My parents used to call me Cliff Clavin from the uh, from the show Cheers, I think, because he's just full yeah. of – I mean, I'd be like eight years old. And they'd be like, how do you know all these random facts? I don't know. It's just – how i was born this way and you were born that way too but no like i haven't i skated in a long time um but i mean last i did i mean it's kind of like i feel i might be entirely wrong here but it's kind of like riding a bike like if you do it enough you just kind of know how to so muscle memory isn't it but the one thing i've always wanted to do is like have an ice rink to myself put some elbow pads on put some knee pads on a long sleeve t-shirt and a helmet and just go for it for a few hours without anybody there laughing at me falling over. <laughs> so I feel like if you had the confidence of not having anybody around you that you're worried about bumping into or tripping over and not having people staring at you, I reckon it wouldn't take me very long to do it because you've got a, it's a bit like skiing in a way you learn from the act of falling over. Yeah, you. That's how you get to grips with it because you learn the limits of skiing. You know, you'll and falling over is part of the fun in a way because sometimes you know going too fast and losing control and ending up into a snowbank is quite funny. But that's how you really gain the control when you push yourself to the limit and then over the edge. That's how you do it. And I just wouldn't have the confidence to go out there on an ice rink with like. 200 other people and you know make yourself look like a complete idiot because you don't know what you're doing maybe there's just no opportunities like that well there's not much ice in england naturally maybe you should take a winter holiday to like finland or something and practice in a field yeah yeah (laughs) find a fred pond or something (laughs) um i like that i like that because it's you kind of went in a different direction with that one but um that was good, Stephen. Did I do two? I think I have a third one, and you'll. I think, I think you'll. I think you will wholeheartedly agree with this one. I wish, as much as I read, thirty-eight books this year and counting. I wish I could read faster because there's way too many books I want to read. Um, I wish I could read at like triple the speed that I read um, and comprehend. You know, you already read really fast. Yeah, but it's I want to read faster. I mean. You know, like literally there's so many books that I want to read and it's just, it keeps on getting worse and worse and worse. And it's like, how, how am I ever going to read all these books? And if I, I bought like, another book today in a bookshop, that's how bad things are getting. I mean, it's like every day I'm adding something on Goodreads, you know, like, <laughs> know. like to, know. today I was like, oh, look, here's a travel book about this guy that went across Siberia. That looks great. 
And then like last week, it's like, oh, here's a short history of the German Empire. That looks great. And then, you know, then I think back and I'm like, oh, I've been meaning to like finish Sherlock Holmes for five years now. And it's just, it's just ridiculous. You know, it's like, what am I ever going to do it? And I'm reading like eight books right now. And it's, I don't know. It's, it it makes me sad. It makes me sad. I wish I could read faster. (laughs) Well, I certainly do because I read about probably a quarter of the speed that you do. (laughs) Um, I'm just not, I, I love reading. I love literature and I love writing, but I'm not, I, I, I've always struggled to digest books fast. I always find myself taking way too long because it's just I end up reading the same thing twice. Um, and my mind's always, especially since I've become an adult, my mind just goes in five, six different directions. So I actually find that unless I've got an audiobook on while I'm reading it, I struggle to actually properly comprehend what I'm reading when it comes to long books articles and stuff no problem at all because it's something you can do in a few minutes but sitting for an hour or laying down in bed for an hour and reading i find you know it's, it's just not as easy as i wish it was i know that feeling too i mean i've been been reading duma key by stephen king on and off I've, i'm trying to knock it out now but it's like 800 pages and i'm like on page 530 or something and it's like you know I just sometimes, man, I, I used to be able to read. I feel like I used to be able to read faster, but I don't know. There's too many distractions now, I guess. Um, and I started listening to Insomnia by Stephen King yesterday. And it's, you know, how long that audiobook is? Put about 30 hours. It's 26 hours long. Yeah, no, it doesn't surprise me. It's massive. Needful things, needful things by. Stephen King, which I am about thirty percent through, is twenty four hours of audiobook. He can write some seriously long books, and yeah. and I just bought another one of his today in a bookshop. Which one? Of foils. I, I, I bought um eleven twenty two sixty three. Oh, that's one. I imagine the... you've read that. Oh yeah, I, I I can see the copy of it on my bookshelf as I'm talking right now. That yeah, I've got it in my hands. That is seriously one of the best books he's ever written. Eleven twenty two sixty three. I didn't. I'd never heard of it. Apparently, it's a TV show because that's what it says in the front of the book. It, it's but, awesome, and it's sci fi. It's not really horror, uh, mm, but it's. it's but I read the back, and I was like, "This sounds amazing." It is, and about it has like Kennedy, about an alternative history of the Kennedy assassination. It's so good, and and then. It's like a window back into the 1950s. Um, you know, the guy goes back in time and he like lives in the 1950s for a while. And it's yeah. it's so good. I mean, and it's well, another... I love Back to the Future. As you know, it's my favorite film. It, so the fact that the blurb pretty much reads like the Back to the Future plot, but we've added Kennedy assassination, for me is like, right, okay. <laughs> yeah. Where do I sign? It it is so good. I mean, I probably read it over ten years ago when it came out, and it's it's. I would I would reread it if I ever get 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 the time. It is it's so good, and you know, like it, it has one of the best endings of any Stephen King book as well. Eleven twenty three. Yeah, so definitely, definitely. I mean, you'll probably just devour that one. That one was a fast read. That one in like the stand. Um, fast read it's like 900 pages yeah but it's it's so good you won't be it's like harry potter like you just 
you just devour it basically. Um, mm. Brilliant. Yeah. No, that you, you waited this whole podcast to tell me you bought one of the best Stephen King books, Stephen. Well, you know, I'm full of surprises, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, you are. Um, <laughs> so, top three, bottom three, should we? Let's go we? for it. Let's go. Okay. For it. So, your dad submitted one with his email, but we're going to do those next time because we already had a top three submitted by Alan Wink up in Ohio. Alan, we appreciate you listening to the podcast, and thank you for always giving us good feedback and good. Uh, good top three, bottom three to do. This one, this top three, he did the top three. The bottom three we did on our own. But um, the, this is a tough top three. And I like all of your top threes. Um, this is one that could have been easily a top 10 or top 15 probably for me. But Oh, yeah, me too. Top three war movies, film or series TV shows. Um so, oh, it's series of TV shows as well. I think I so. I was thinking movies. I think so. So, if you want to do a audible real quick while I go over mine, um, I'm going to have to leave it to films because otherwise, I'm going to have to knock two of them out. Because for me, Band of Brothers and the Pacific are in a class of their own. So, I'm going to leave TV shows out of this. I'm going to just do movies. I know. I know. It's. It's difficult. I mean, I, I mold over this longer than I should have because I've always loved war films. Um, but the first one, I don't think you've seen Patton. It was like it came out like 1970. Have you ever seen that with George C. No, Scott? I've not. No, I've not. It's an epic. Uh, you know, it's like one of those kind of like old school movies with like an amazing orchestral soundtrack. It's long. There's like an intermission in it because it's so long. Um it's like Spartacus, you know, that, that type of grand film. And it's awesome. Um, I've not watched it in years, but it's about <clears throat> General Patton, World War II, who was an amazing general, probably one of the best that's ever lived. Um, and just a great personality, too. Uh, George C. Scott does the – he's Patton, um, which George C. Scott was actually born in my mom's hometown, Wise, Virginia. Um and he, of course, was a very famous actor and has long since passed away. But Patton's great. And then kind of the secondary character in it is Bernard Montgomery, the British general. You know, he and Patton were big rivals. So there's this, like, awesome scene uh, when the Allies captured Sicily from the Germans. And you you got to see this scene. Like, if you don't watch the movie, like, watch this scene on YouTube. But basically, I'll watch the movie. I'll yeah, definitely need to watch it. It's a and, and then so like Omar Bradley, who's a character in the movie too, was still alive when this film was being produced, and he actually like helped with the film to make it accurate, which is really cool. But, anyways, this Sicily scene. So like Patton and Montgomery were frenemies or whatever. They were both very dramatic people and competed against one another for conquest. And so, um. When the, the, the scene opens up, basically, I guess it's Palermo, Sicily, the capital. Um, uh, Montgomery and his British troops are marching through the city and all the Italians, you know, are cheering and waving and stuff. And Bernard Montgomery's out like in front, like walk, you know, marching. And he's got like his bagpipes and stuff behind him and they're playing 
I don't know, Royal Britannia or whatever, or Scotland the Brave. And, you know, it's like, okay, like the British got there first. Cool. Well, they like round this corner into the square of the city and Patton and his tanks and all his men are standing there at attention and they salute the British. And then Patton nods to his band, the military band, and they start playing um, the Star Spangled Banner or like, you know, one of the patriotic American songs. And it's so funny. I mean, in this very serious movie, because the whole time you're like, okay, like, you know, Montgomery won the race, but then there's Patton standing there. And that just kind of like sums up those two people very well. Um, mm. But the other two, gosh, you know, we, we said at one time these were rapid fire, right? But they're, they're never rapid fire for, for us. <laughs> you can rapid fire through the bottom three. Eh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Gettysburg, which is, of course, based on one of my favorite novels, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, novel, The Killer Angels, which... I think I told you to read a long time ago and you did. Um, The movie came out in the nineties. It's a great movie um, about the American civil war. It's always kind of stuck with me. Um, Jeff Daniels is in it. A very serious role for Jeff Daniels, you know, because he was also in the nineties in dumb and dumber. And then I think Martin Sheen. No, I can't remember who was Robert E. Lee, but um, it's a great movie. Another long movie. Um, and then lastly, I love Mel Gibson, and it was hard to not pick Braveheart, but I went with The Patriot because that's one of my favorite movies of all time. I've loved it. I've loved all these movies since I was a kid. But The Patriot with Mel Gibson, another 90s war film about the American Revolution, is fantastic. And Jason Isaacs plays the villain, you know, uh, Dra- Draco Malfoy's dad, Lucius Malfoy. Um, and he plays. I love that actor. He plays the perfect villain in Harry Potter. And then of course in the Patriot too, he's a cavalry officer, British cavalry officer. And he is vile in this movie. And then of course, you know, Mel Gibson's the American Patriot farmer who leads like kind of a guerrilla war against the Redcoats in South Carolina. And it's just epic. Great movie. And Heath Ledger's in it too. Can't even believe I forgot to mention him. So Ensemble cast for sure, and I, I don't think you've watched that. It's probably not a very popular movie in the I, UK. I'd say. I think I have seen. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I have seen it on your recommendation a long time ago. Okay, yeah, that's <clears throat> that's another epic one. Um, but okay, let's. I see your three, and I'm just gonna go ahead and say I agree with all three of your three as well. So <laughs> it's so hard with war movies because I've seen so many, and there are so many that. You- that I'd love to shout out. I'm going to do a few shout outs. The Pianist, amazing. Schindler's List, amazing. Apocalypse Now, amazing. Full Metal Jacket, exceptional. Platoon, exceptional. Like, there are so many films you could pick. Last of the Mohicans. Um, just, yeah. I mean, there are so many powerful movies, but I've, I've whittled it down to three. Um, for the purposes of this, and uh, <laughs> although I don't think it's necessarily the best uh, war film start to finish, Saving Private Ryan had to be in there for me because it changed war movies forever. Yep, that open the opening scene, the the D Day landing scenes was genuinely at the time because this is pre this is a pre band of brothers world unlike anything anybody had seen before on screen 
And to this to this day, it's still one of the most difficult twenty minutes to watch um, in any movie. You know, I'm, I'm talking even the most gruesome horror films because it's so harrowing and it's so realistic. And some people, I know plenty of people who almost won't watch the movie because they don't want to have to sit through it. But it's so powerful. So the for the fact that the first half of um, Private Ryan is so good, it's it's in the top three for me because same Private Ryan really does show you how horrible war is. So that's in there. Yeah. Um, second is Downfall, which is a uh, German subtitled movie about the final days of Hitler in his bunker towards the end of World War II. Um, and it's just so captivating. All the actors are superb in it. You must have seen Downfall. Oh my right? gosh, yeah. That's... Yeah, Downfall is just so good. And I don't think it's appreciated anywhere near as much as it should be. I don't know if that's because it's a subtitled movie, because it's a foreign film, or whether it's because it just wasn't particularly you know, well-marketed and big when it came out. Because I didn't see it when it first came out and hadn't, you know, until I studied uh, A-level history. Um, it didn't really cross my path. But just a really, really intelligent movie that really gets across the madness of the end of World War Two, And just, you really do see, or it gives you a proper window into how Nazi Germany fell apart. And it's just awesome. It's really awesome. And one of the most um, parodied scenes... Yeah, yeah, the map room scene, yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of unfortunate because in the film itself, in the context of the actual film, it's, it's one serious. of the most spellbinding sort of five or ten minutes <laughs> of, in war cinema of all time. But yeah, it's it has been parodied so over and over again. Because it'll, it'll be like, because the scene is like Hitler's mad that everything in Nazi Germany is collapsing but then like there'll be like a par- like there's like a parody it's like Hitler's reaction when the McDonald's ice cream machines broke in or something <laughs> and yeah. then they have the subtitles yeah. about that but Butch, Butch Jones faces the media after another massive defeat to Alabama or <laughs> yeah um, I mean yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah so no downfall for me is in there um, and then um, I mean, another another couple that I've got to say a shout out to is um, Inglorious Bastards. You have to count as a war film, Nazis, but it is it's a bit more of a war, a bit more than war film because it's not based in in fact. Um, but that's awesome. Uh, but my third one that snuck in is a recent one. It's nineteen seventeen, which is a recent film and the most recent of all the films on our lists, but probably the most awesome war film I've seen on screen and that's you know even compared to Oppenheimer this year which I thought in IMAX was just mind-blowing as a war film but 1917 um, which I'm sure you went to see in the cinema as well didn't you that was the last movie I saw in theaters before COVID and it was right when I first yeah me too I went and saw it three times because I thought this is so good and it's it's a film that really lends itself to the big screen, doesn't it? Because it's so immersive 
you really do because of the way it's shot it's shot as if it's all done in one continuous take it's practically all shot from ground level from eye level um Amazing. and shot from people on rails and on cameras that makes it feel like you are a person walking along while all this stuff's going on and just it's again it's another film that starts so well like private ryan and like um full metal jacket in particular where you can't take your eyes off it for the first half an hour right the first half an hour of that film where they're walking well it's it starts immediately bang it's like 10 seconds in you're standing up you're walking through a trench you're sent on a mission and all of a sudden you're in no man's land and creeping through barbed wire and you know dead soldiers and horses and stuff and it's horror it's harrowing and horrifying to watch but you can't take your eyes off it because it's the the, the tension oozes from the screen so yeah 1917 just so well directed really was like i was just as impressed with the way it was filmed as i was about the actual film itself and the contents of it and how well it was acted and how impressive some of the special effects were just the way it was shot was just just but mind-blowing what what about that yeah that's my top three what what about that scene at the end where they're they're in the circle and the, the men are singing uh, the River Jordan, that old hymn. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's that's really haunting, isn't it? I think that's an old Appalachian hymn. Um, it is, yeah. yeah. I think I looked that up because I said, my gosh, you know, this sounds like something, you know, that you would hear in church. And it is. It's an old hymn. And, you know, that just across the River Jordan, I'm going to see my brother, you know, like it's oh, crazy. Um, God, Stephen, that was good. I mean, and also like you know the German movie that came out recently, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, the remake. Yeah. Oh man, that was good, and I wish I'd seen it in the cinema, but I don't even know if it got released in the cinema over here. Dunkirk, another man, good one that's recent. Yeah. Oh, there's been amazing recent ones. Hacksaw Ridge is pretty recent. Oh, Hacksaw Ridge, yeah, from Lynchburg. Yeah. Bridge of Spies, Munich Edge of War, Operation Mincemeat was great. Like there, it is a good time for war movies in the last decade. Well, there have been some absolute bangers. I feel like it, and we've got Napoleon coming up, haven't we? I, which we're going to do a special episode on. I was just about to say, if Alan had asked us this a month later, I think that the upcoming Ridley Scott film starring Joaquin Phoenix would the Napoleon biopic would be on this list because, by all accounts, it's going to be awesome, and it's like a three-plus-hour movie and. I cannot wait. You know, Napoleon Bonaparte is someone who has been due for an epic movie. Um, big fan of Napoleon. Uh, big, big fan of that. Um, big up end dog. Yeah. What now? Big up end dog. What's that mean? Well, Napoleon. My man end dog. Napoleon. I don't get it. Maybe I'm too British. Yeah, you're gonna have to Americanize this for me. I'm lost. Usually, usually. So I'm I thought good. that was Americanized. So, ho hum. Maybe I'm just dense. Well, I am, but um, no, I, I seriously cannot wait. Like the initial reviews look so good for that, and I don't go to the movies often. I'm very selective with what I watch, and that one I'm gonna be sitting in the theater watching that movie as soon as I can because. I can't wait. And I know you can't wait. Yeah, no, me too. Um, me too. 
So should we finish up on a rapid fire bottom three? Bottom three chores. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, this. Uh, you know, I kind of like cleaning generally, but my bottom three are cleaning the shower, which is hard. Cleaning baseboards. Ugh. And then cleaning the oven, which is also terrible. So those are my three. What are yours? Um, sticking your hand down a shower filter or a plug hole oh. and yanking out sludgy hair. Oh, that's I. I that's I, in this household. That is my job, and is a sickening, horrifying experience. Um, I really dislike. And this is number two. I really dislike washing up bowls when they're full of like cold water with food sloshed around in it while you're washing dishes. Uh-huh. I just hate having my hand in a bowl that's full of like sludgy food. Really not not a fan. And then third one is um, when you're taking out the bins and you get the bin juice thing. Not a fan of bin juice when you get the, the kitchen bin and it's just, and it's inevitably overloaded. <laughs> And inevitably, there's gravy in there, even though you've not had a roast dinner in two months. <laughs> and it feels like it's just leaking all, and you've just got to be, you've got to like do the sort of, right, you open the door and I'll run and sort of scoop around everything and try and <laughs> get as few drips as possible on the, oh, Jesus Christ. So, yeah, we'll end on that. <laughs> yeah, that, those were some good ones too. I, I don't disagree. Um, with any of the <laughs> wow we, we really this was a roller coaster of an episode you know we we talked about a bunch of random stuff to start then we went into halloween then we went into skills we want to learn and then you know kind of went back serious with the war movies and it ended kind of lightheartedly so 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 it goes right exactly that's that's the way it should be yeah uh, yeah a feast a feast of emotion that's right. Well, go ahead, Stephen, and sign us off here since you started the episode. It's been been good to talk to you, my friend. Yeah. Thanks no, for listening, everybody. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Get in touch. Um, always a pleasure to talk to you, Daniel. And it's it's good to interact with listeners as well. So please do contact us by text, by email on neitherhinnortherepod at gmail.com or on Instagram, DM us on there, or, you know, just find a way to get in touch. We're always up for discussing your topics or hearing suggestions or feedback on what we're doing because that's what makes it worthwhile. So, yeah, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, thanks, Daniel, for uh, for joining me on this Friday morning it is now. Oh. Um, it's been fantastic. Well, just think in a few hours the podcast is going to go live. So. It will go live and I'll still be asleep. That's right. Well, <laughs> all right, guys. It's been great, Stephen, as always. Yeah. We'll uh, yeah. talk to you next time, my friend. Um, have a good one. Yeah. Yes, you too. Speak to you soon, brother. See you.